Welcome. Welcome to the podcast webinar uh, hosted by the Muslim Food Bank, the Muslim Care Center, Aspire, and is sponsored by Islamic Relief. Our special guest today is a great service to the community called Nissa Helpline. And Shaliza Muhammad is the operations manager that uh, runs the, the day-to-day with, uh, with Anwir uh, Ibrahim and uh, both uh, really doing a lot of great impact to the community. So uh, to get started, uh, Shaliza, please introduce yourself and then also introduce Nissa Helpline and its contribution and service to the, the community. Assalamu alaikum, Tariq. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting us. Uh, so I'm, I'm Shaliza. I am the operations manager at Nissa Helpline. And um, the Sahel Helpline is a peer counseling service. We are a free, non-judgmental um, peer counseling service that is open to women across North America. Our counseling line runs 12 hours a day. Um, our focus is on mental health. Our specialty, our, our specialized skill is integrating um, spiritual care into peer counseling. All our counselors are equipped to um, to deal with uh, issues that are related to racialized minorities, in specific our Muslim community and our Muslim women. Um, so that's a you know a, a quick intro into Nissa Helpline. My role is really just to make sure that all things come together, the service is up and running, the team is good to go. We have an amazing group of volunteers. Our service is fueled by volunteers like myself. Um, a little bit about me during the day, I like to call it my, my day job. I, I am um, a learning and development professional. I've been within L&D for the last 12 years through in the corporate space, uh, more recently um, within a major retailer, again, within L&D, learning and development. Uh, I personally um, enjoy and, and my skill is to set up people to succeed. So, you know, doing this on my spare time, very, very um, close to my heart, whether you're setting people up to succeed in a job or you're setting it up for life, um, very, very, both, both very close to my heart. So that's a little bit about me and a very quick intro into the helpline. And I'm sure we'll get into a, a lot more about the helpline as we continue on. And especially as your background in the corporate world as a corporate executive to bring that, uh, that kind of corporate structure and uh, uh, know-how to, to the not-for-profit space and the community service space. And one thing which is amazing to me about Nissa Helpline is this real focus to help uh, specifically Muslim sisters all across North America. And my understanding is you receive 500 calls per month uh, Muslim women from all walks of life, all ages, and uh, and please talk about how do how do people find this a helpline, and then uh, specifically what are the the common things that they they uh, they are calling about, and what are the common concerns and 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 ailments uh, that, that that they they discuss with your team. So we have you know. The Nissa Helpline, we're, we're a broad scope in that um, you can call us for anything. I, you know, I, I like to start up with that. You can call Nissa Helpline for anything. If you're looking for a, a peer counselor, you're looking for somebody to talk to, you can call us for anything. Um, what we've seen in terms of our call drivers and what people are calling us for, 
the majority of those calls are coming through in relation to mental health. Um, there, you know, an average of 35% of those calls come through on mental health, another 30% on marital and family issues, 10% on, on domestic violence. There's a 3% on addiction, 5% on Islamophobia. We've received over 30,000 calls since 2014 to now. Um, that, and yes, that does average out to 500 calls per month on, on an average month. Um, you know, and though these are our higher call drivers, our calls are not limited to, to these um, sort of subjects or um, issues, for lack of a better word. But essentially, if you're, if you're a female in North America and you are looking for someone to speak with, um, we're here, we're here. And we really position ourselves um, as, as that. The differentiator of our helpline is all our counselors are Muslim women. So the sensitivities to the issues that impact our Muslim community, um, we're specialized into dealing with, the, with those. And starting off with peer-to-peer -peer support, and then mm -hmm. also being a sounding board and resource to connect uh, serious issues with professionals. That's right. So our, you know, peer counseling is is not, um, you know, there's a there's a difference between peer counseling and sort of receiving uh, support from a therapist. There's definitely those two. So we are our, you know, I like to say we're first line of response. You're going to reach out to a peer counselor, and in that conversation, you you know, we wouldn't use our network we would use um, resources so a part, referral service is really what we um, we'd like to call that so we'll we'll use referral services within our community to help you the, the to get you to the help that you need um, in terms of what does that mean and what does that translate to into an actual call um, let's say for example you know you've made a call and, and you're now dealing with anxiety for the first time we'll talk a little bit about that we'll help you get through the the, the first response right that that urgent need to help to get you through that first um, phase and then as we continue to to speak with you and talk through continuous care, we'll probably refer you to something, you know, someone like a family doctor or a mental health professional who can continue, can, can provide you with that continuous care service. Now, the other piece of this that sometimes goes unnoticed with um, what we do is that referral um, service as well. So, you know, quite a lot of calls that come through our, um, you know, from new immigrants, our, our Muslim community, there's quite a few new immigrants within North America. And whether you're looking to figure out how to access, you know, free legal aid, or you're looking for, um, you know, you, you found yourself in some sort of situation where you're looking to navigate um, some, you know, some bureaucracy or, I don't know, some forms and things like that <laughs> within, um, within, within the community, we can definitely help with things like that. That is where we come in to really just support you. And uh, one of the, uh, the main changes over the last few months, of course, has been the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, it's influenced all nonprofit yeah. sectors across the board, yeah. um, but in particular to the types of calls that you've been receiving, uh, has there been any uh, change that you guys mm -hmm. have experienced uh, specifically that you can tie directly to the pandemic? Because, you know, more people are spending time at home. There's, uh, you know, more stress, more anxiety out in general. Uh, so what has your experience been over the last yeah, six to so eight that's months? That's a really good question. Um, you know, we have been saying this from March, <laughs> from the time this hit, that the next pandemic is mental health. 
the pandemic is here. So, you know, I, I absolutely will not diminish the um, impacts of COVID-19 that it is having, but one of the major impacts that it is having is on mental health. Our community, our Muslim community is not immune to mental health um, issues or, or unrelated. What we have seen is a 46% increase in calls between March and June. Um, that's significant, right? So if I look at this year and, the, and last year, what we were seeing is significant amount of, of call increase. The, um, when I look at call drivers, mental health related calls have doubled um, in this period. When we look at um, calls on abuse, domestic abuse, emotional abuse, sexual harassment, they've increased by 81%. Um, you know, this is something we've never seen. And to be quite candid with you, um, us at the helpline, we, you know, we, we thought we were ready, right? We, we literally thought we were ready. <laughs> and then the calls started coming in and we weren't, right? So we had to go into, you know, really had to pivot really quickly. We had to look to the community for the right resources. Um, and that meant uh, Muslim resources and non-Muslim resources as well. And really bring those together to make sure that our counselors online were ready and equipped to take those calls. Um, you know, if we, we've we spoken a lot on our page as well about reintegration and the impact that it's having on mental health and what it looks like and the fact that we've, you know, us in Canada, we've probably never, never experienced this before. So, you know, there's that first phase where we talk about, you know, staying home and there's some social interactions, you know, we, we don't have our community to rely on and all of that pieces that we went through. So there's de definitely some significant impact on that. And then the next piece is what happens when we start to go back out, right? So now we're seeing that people are going back out and then there's fear and then there's anxiety. I know we've received a call where, um, you know, there was a call about somebody talking about the fact that they have to go back to work, but mm -hmm. they're ex and experiencing an anxiety attack for the first time and they didn't know what it was, right? And then they call us and they're like, yeah, it sounds to me that this is what it is, right? And really just making those connections to get them the help that they need. Um, so, you know, this one is very close to our heart because we are seeing this and, and, you know, I hope that we're being loud and clear that the impact of COVID-19 on mental health is a huge, um, it's the next pandemic and we're, we're going to say that out loud. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think there's a lot of uh, papers have been published that the, uh, the hidden costs of the COVID-19 pandemic yeah. Because uh, the, um, there, there's already loneliness epidemics in, in North America. There's many, uh, you know, there's drug addiction, and we'll touch on all of this. But um, you, you did mention something called reintegration. So reintegration, are you speaking about uh, people leaving the kind of lockdown state and then reintegrating into society? Is, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, so we, we did start to see some of that over the last little month. I know now, you know, we're in Ontario. Now we're starting to see it go, go back a little bit. But yeah, we definitely prepared ourselves and we started to see, um, equip ourselves for those calls. And yes, we did get those calls where people are, you know, you've been for home for some time and now you do have to go back. And and yes, that is what we're referring to. Yes. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, so you mentioned also that the uh, other resources uh, that you're partnering with to help provide, uh, you know, help and aid to, uh, a lot of the people who, who do call NISA helpline. So it, it actually ties in well with maybe talking a little bit about the background of um, the Muslim Care Center, uh, Aspire and Muslim Food Bank. And, and I'll let Tark uh, go into that a little bit uh, because a lot of the needs do seem to overlap, especially with mental health and addiction. Yeah, and, and again, um, the Muslim Care Center and the Muslim Food Bank um, largely giving food to people that uh, require uh, 
these services just to help them with their budget and newcomers, elderly, disabled, what have you. And then with the care center, the focus being the general public, which uh, uh, to help people in the name of Islam, a majority of the people that get the food on the downtown east side from the Muslim care center are non-Muslims, as well as in Surrey Central, where the Muslim care center distributes food to the general public. And uh, so, but part of the symptoms is that uh, a number of the people and a lot of Muslims would come for food that had mental health problems and drug addiction and uh, alcohol dependency and addiction problems. So again, Aspire, uh, shortly after the Muslim Food Bank launched, Aspire was created uh, to focus on helping the 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 other aspects, which which are could be health related, mental health related, uh, financial issues, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things that lead as to why somebody would have to come to a food bank anyway. So to try and help uh, before it comes to that uh, that situation where where people people do need the food, and in a similar fashion. Uh, my understanding of NISA Foundation was uh, there was a larger kind of goal to help uh, Muslim women that were kind of in an acute crisis, but the NISA helpline was focused towards uh, prevention and, and getting at the early stage before it can become a very serious problem. Yeah, so Tariq, you know, you, you've really hit the nail there in terms of where we started, how we've evolved and where we are at now. So like um, the Muslim care center we too uh, in our early stages saw you know we, we the the founders um let's say that the founders were really looking at nisa foundation and they you know the the drive was to provide access to shelter services for muslim women and you know i, I really like to bring in here um some of the thoughts from our director tanmir ibrahim um, in that exercise, so in that project implementation of providing shelter services, what really resonated with her was the, what was the root cause? Why, why do we even need all of these homes, right? So that was, you know, really the, the starting point of what do we need within the Muslim community? Sure, we need homes, but what, what does that do in terms of preventative care, in terms of intervention? How will that help our families? And then, you know, the group of sisters and brothers, alhamdulillah, that were involved in Nisa Foundation and the, um, our piece, which is Nisa Helpline, really honed in on what is the root cause. And it is um, intervention, intervention early, keeping the families together and providing access. And we're really removing some of those barriers to accessing mental help early so that we don't end up having to... Um, increase the amount of home shelters that we need. We, we give families what they need. We equip our families, um, our moms, we equip our, our families really early to avoid the situations altogether. You know, like in, in your service, very, very similar. Um, you know, what does intervention look like early on so that we don't end up in food banks, so that we don't have to worry about the next meal, right? What does intervention look like really early on um, if we're, if we're taking a look at um, addiction, if we're taking a look at overall mental health and all of the, the pieces that our community needs that as well. Um, and, you know, just to bring in something that you also said there that, you know, are in the food banks, it's not just Muslim people and like us, right? You know, this is something I've, I've always said that Muslims aren't immune to the issues that affect the communities. 
So for us to come and say, yeah, there's Muslims at the food bank. Yep, there's Muslims that need to access um, support, whether it's for addiction. Um, the, yep, there's Muslims that need to, there are Muslim women that need access and need support for mental health. We really shouldn't be surprised. Exactly. And, and with all of us as a team, because all of us are here as members of our community, we're Canadians, we, 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 we care about our, our, not only our Muslim community, but Canada at large, the general public, part of the Canadian mosaic. And, and these issues, uh, again, mental health and uh, addiction are critical um, issues that in, in the mosque format, uh, I I totally understand mosques and Islamic organizations by and large are, are just facilitating the, the worship requirements for the Muslim community, but these larger social services, which, which are much needed and formalized very well and effectively and successfully by Nissa Helpline and Muslim Food Bank and Muslim Care Center and Aspire. So these formalized services to help these kind of uh, worldly needs uh, psychologically and physically and so I think the goal here, and again, one of the topics um, that we wanted to dive into was addiction. And, and again, with uh, kind of some of the resources we've established uh, with the Care Center and Aspire and the Food Bank was to, to provide various resources. So there's several counselors and therapists and psychiatrists to help those that want that type of uh, in-person uh, counseling, uh, also uh, replicating models that work in in uh, in the West, like the twelve step program, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. So we've had a successful program and a team of, of Muslims that were former addicts that are desirous to give back, and they really spend a lot of their spare time to really help uh, Muslims that are currently in addiction and give them the example that they've been able to beat the addiction and come out on the other side. Now, where we see this kind of collaboration and and uh, working with the NISA helpline is highlighting an issue in our community that really isn't talked about much, which is uh, addiction amongst Muslim women. And perhaps we can just talk about that and the experience NISA helpline has specifically about addiction for women in the Muslim community. So, um, you know, these are heavy topics. Um... Tariq and Yusuf, I, I think I said this to Yusuf earlier, you, this is a heavy topic for, <laughs> for us today, um, but let's get right in, right? So addiction, you know, and what we've seen at Nissa Helpline. So um, there's a historically a 3%, 3% of calls that are coming in on addiction, and it's actually consistent year over year. So I, I looked for this and I said, is it increasing? It's actually quite consistent for since we've been collecting this data. It's 3% of our calls, which is an average of 30 calls per month that are di directly related to um, addiction. Our audience, always Muslim women within North America. So I deep dived a little bit to see um, what else I can, can come in and share with you. And what really stood out to me was the connection um, with there's two there's two main call drivers that our Muslim women are, are sort of um, in there's the connection with, pain, with prescription painkillers and there is the time which is women within postpartum depression so we actually saw a connection of the three percent of calls that are related to uh, postpartum depression so I gathered this up just just a few a uh, little while ago and I, I looked at it and I said oh well there's definitely some some connection here, right? The the calls that we're getting related to addiction are 
at that critical time, you know, and, and I really started to think about this. I said, this is the time where most families are, um, they're celebrating, right? There's the birth of a new baby and, and we're all, you know, within the Muslim community, it's like, oh, it's Akika, it's time for goat, right? But then I said, <laughs> look at the calls that we're getting. And, and I said, okay, so there's the, this pres prescription painkillers, which seems to be a driver within the Muslim community. And then there's the connection with postpartum depression. So there's a, a new baby in the home. And it really just um, it really just dawned on me that the experience that the the mom, this new mom, is going through, and what that means for her at that time when everybody else is is really excited and happy, right? And and then the value that the peer counseling service that we offer really comes to play in that during that time, the fact that you do have somebody to to call and talk to about some of the challenges that you're having during that period. So. Um, so there's a few things that I think I really want to call out here. One, it exists within our community. So it's not up for discussion whether Muslim women, um, racialized women, women um, within our community face addiction and, and the, um, the issues that are related to addiction. It's, it's not up for discussion. 3% um, of our calls, 30 calls a month, it's there. The, um, the sensitivities within the Muslim community. I think, you know, as a Muslim community, I think we, we definitely champion social services. I think when it comes to um, our cultural sensitivities and our openness to conversations that empower women to seek help, um, like the, the wider community, we're not immune, right? So it's not, you know, I can speak to anybody, you know, women going through postpartum depression deal with a lot of different things. And one of them is, seems to be, it appears to be, like we said, there's no, there's no discussion about it. Addiction is one of them. Prescription painkillers, one of them. Are Muslim women going through the exact same thing? And that, and, and, uh, no, please go ahead, Tark. Uh, would would antidepressants and uh, these type of prescriptions be be dependencies? Um, from what I understand, there there's a direct correlation between women who are on antidepressants before um, the before getting to a postpartum stage, but the increase of likeliness to move into sort of a, an addiction phase will increase at postpartum phase if there was an antidepressant before um, that stage. Got it. And, and, and sorry to interrupt there, Yusuf, uh, just on this line, like I think what's critical, um, sometimes people don't feel confident to discuss their personal issues with family members or friends, and they need anonymous support. And my understanding is NISA helpline is seven days a week, 12 hours a day, correct? And everything's anonymous and confidential. Yep. It's anonymous, confidential, non-judgmental support that you can get, um, that we are open, our counselors, our peer counselors are trained, they're well-equipped to handle these calls that come in in the wide variety of um of, li of lifestyle challenges, of issues that our callers go through, that our, that our moms are, are going through, that our sisters, our daughters, that they're going through. So our service is open, it is free, it is accessible. You see the correlation between postpartum depression and uh, addictions because they're both, uh, I would say, taboo subjects in the Muslim community. In the general community as well, um, there, there's been studies showing that it's 
socially unacceptable for women, uh, non-Muslim women included, of course, uh, to say that, oh, I, I feel depressed after having a child, or I don't feel a connection with my child, I don't feel love for my child, I just, so it, it, it seems like having an avenue uh, that's, as Tark was saying, that, that protects your anonymity, uh, but by which you can gain answers has been helpful. Ha have you found that to be the case as well uh, with, uh, with your visa uh, help? Yeah, so our, our service is 100% confidential, 100% anonymous. You can call us and you, you don't have to give your name. We probably we won't even tell you our name if you know it's it's a conversation with somebody that's there to listen. And in those non-judgmental conversations, you're um, you know, you have permission to express yourself because there is, you know, your mother-in-law isn't there, your husband isn't there, there's nobody else that's there. Um, and we, you know, what we really advocate for is for you to express exactly how you're feeling at that time. And let us help you through that. Let us help you through that conversation because that in itself is, is, um, is therapeutic. Um, so, you know, really, we, we advocate for you to have that conversation, for you to say out loud what you're feeling. And, you know, as our counselors take these calls, sometimes, you know, at the end of the call, whether it's a call about postpartum depression, whether it's a call about, I've just had my first baby, I don't know what's wrong with me. Everybody is happy, I'm happy, the baby is lovely. I, I just don't know what's going through right now. I just can't manage, you know, I, I can't even articulate what I'm feeling. Um, you know, so the anonymous confidential piece is for, for our woman to, have a place to call to have that piece of the conversation to say that out loud because once you've said that out loud we can we can help you navigate right and that's where our, our service really comes to play um you know sometimes that navigation means that you have that one-time call and you're feeling okay and you walk away with some with some tips to um with some strategies to implement so that you can continue the rest of your day and sometimes you know depending on what the counselor and in that conversation goes there may be an um the um, recommendation that you access continuous care and that's where the referral piece of our service comes in where we'd you know really consider that you um, access long-term continuous care to get the help that you need so those conversations conversations start happening really early and that's what we really advocate for really advocate for an intervention let's prevent it before it gets before it gets to a place where um, we can't do anything about it right let's prevent um, the long-term impact early so that we're not looking for um, emergency shelter services, which because, you know, sometimes, you know, we do get a significant amount of calls like that as well. And, and again, to alleviate that stress by having that confidential mm. uh, conversation, because uh, against when, when somebody is, is undergoing personal stress, emotional stress, or financial stress, or whatever the case may be uh, to be able to express uh, to somebody who's non-judgmental and, and confidential about their issues kind of helps alleviate a lot of that pressure as well, I would imagine. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think having somebody to talk to is, it sounds like it's something simple, eh? <laughs> but having somebody to talk to, um, the value add that that can impact your life in terms of where you go and where you don't go. Um, what what's the difference between living and thriving having somebody to talk to really um I, I i can't even find the words to describe the value and and that's what we we hope to offer yeah i, I believe i believe there's an islamic concept called the mashura 
and to be able to speak to somebody who can, I think when you're subjective in your own mind, thinking about your own problems, you can only see a few solutions, but when somebody else objectively can hear your story, they can see much more uh, solutions. Uh, that's why we're better at giving others advice than to <laughs> because we can see it objectively on somebody else and yeah. to have that that positive sounding board and an objective kind of uh, uh, person to, to give guidance. I think you're providing a very, very powerful service. Alhamdulillah, yes, um, d definitely 100%. Yusuf, I'm sorry, I think I cut you off there. No, 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 please go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> and and how, how do people find Nissa Helpline and how have people find Nissa Helpline? Because 500 calls a month, like how, how did the word get out? How did people or Muslim women understand that this resource is, was there and what is the actual phone number? Yeah, sure. So Nissa Helpline, you can find us, um, we're all over social media. You can find us on www.nissahelpline.com. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn, uh, <laughs> you name it, we're on it. Um, if you're looking for support, if you want to speak with a counselor, you can reach us at 1-888-315-NISA. That's 1-888-315-6472. That's great. Go ahead. Sorry, Yusuf. No worries. Uh, you mentioned counselors. So I, I actually have a, a thought here. Uh, our the counselors that you connect people with, are they familiar about the uh, kind of Islamic heritage and the perspective that Muslim women would come from, uh, from cultural as well as religious backgrounds? Uh, because it, there, there is, a, you know, sometimes a hesitancy amongst people to just seek out uh, general, um, you know, uh, say, let's call them secular councils uh, who might not have the kind of background understanding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a two, I'm going to answer that in a two part question. <laughs> so there's two things that we've seen. One, one of the uh, major barriers to accessing mental health services that are um, available to us within, you know, everyday um, counseling service, there is the taboo of I need mental health that I need to overcome. Um, and then there is, I don't want to go to a counselor because they don't understand what I'm going through. And when, when somebody says they don't understand what I'm going through, the lens that they're speaking through is the cultural piece, the um, sort of the religious, um, the spiritual, uh, the spiritual, the spiritual that yeah, that you find yourself in. Yeah, so th those conflict situations, you're like, I want to do this, I don't want to do this, but then you're looking at it from a, from a spiritual lens. And then, you know, what we've seen at the helpline is that one, that's the first thing we need to overcome, right? Um, that you you can access help. Um, there's nothing one on Islamic or weak about accessing help. Two, um, you know, I personally would say that this is the number one reason why our families aren't accessing help because they're concerned about being judged. And then they're concerned that the counselor won't understand. So a service like us comes in and we're like, yeah, how about, you know, our counselor? And then to answer the first part of your question, all our counselors are trained on um, specifics that are related to our community. Um, and they all have a background in psychology. They're all either um, certified or in the process of being licensed. So there's, and there's a robust training program that we also offer throughout the onboarding and the continuous stage. And that is to ensure that one, those lens of you know, spiritual care come in as well. And that feeling of, um, I'm gonna be judged 
or um, I'm dealing with maybe a, a spiritual conflict with the decision making, there's somebody that who actually has those skills that can offer me that help is there. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and when you ever, I'm sure you've come across this language, um, language preferences, we, we've had a lot of newcomers uh, speaking Arabic or, or Farsi or, or let's say Punjabi or Urdu or whatever the case may be, or, or uh, Dadi or Pashto. What are the language resources in terms of support to, to help uh, folks that uh, English is, is very difficult for their communication? So at this time, our peer counseling service is only in English. Um, and what, you know, that does not mean that you're, you know, we can't help. What we do, um, again, is once we are able to identify where, what language um, you're looking for support in, again, that's where that network of referral services come through. So if, you know, once we're able to identify that, then we can find, is there a counselor that, you know, is there a Muslim therapist? Because this person most likely is looking for somebody who can, who can support them um, with that religious lens as well. Is there a Muslim therapist that's within our network database that can speak Farsi, for example, within that area and will make those connections. Um, but in terms, in terms of our service, it is English only at this time. Um, that doesn't mean that we're not able, to, our, our network is robust. We are gonna try our very best to connect you with the service that you're looking for. And, and again, you're based in Toronto. I'm based here in Vancouver. So across Canada, the resources that you've established across the country uh, in the United States as well. So having pockets of, of professionals and support in all these different regions where you're getting calls from. Yep. So our counselors, um, you know, something that, you know, we were based, we based out of Vancouver. Um, but just, I'm in Toronto, so there's a lot of us all over. Our counselors and our team are spread across Canada and U.S. So we do have quite a few counselors that are in the U.S. as well. And then we have quite a few counselors that are here in Canada, across Canada. And I think really what that equips us with is um, sensitivity to current affairs across, across North America. Um, and the other piece that I really like to point out is that the community, you know, the North American community is so diverse in terms of landscape. Um, I, I always like to mention the fact that we have one counselors um, out in Alberta or even out in the really remote areas. And we get calls from some of these really remote areas as well. And um, that's always been encouraging to me that it doesn't really matter where we're located or where we're at. We're really just a North American service with North American networks and we're providing this right here at home in our community. And you mentioned the remote uh, people that are isolated in remote uh, communities. And uh, I'm sure having somebody to talk to that, that can relate, especially from a Muslim uh, context. Uh, I did grow up in a small town in uh, in the uh, north of British Columbia is called Fort St. John. As far as I knew, there's like one or two Muslim families. And uh, and yeah, it, it's like there is, uh, I would say, a zero Islamic environment. So I can imagine in rural communities, especially from a cultural and a uh, Islamic standpoint, to, to really have somebody to speak to with the cultural aspect as well as the religious aspect. Uh, it's a powerful service to provide the, the communities that are detached from a mainstream or a well-established Muslim community community yeah so you know now I'm, I'm gonna really piggyback on that and i'm gonna say now think about that from a new muslim lens because that those are the calls that we're getting um 
you know, think about a new Muslim in a remote area. So it's already challenging enough when you're in a remote area and there's like three Muslim families in this little pocket. And if you're a new Muslim, you probably didn't have that, you know, you don't have that family network. So your circle becomes even smaller, right? So, it, you know, it really encourages me to know that even those Muslims, you know, those Muslim families, those Muslim sisters are able to call us and, and have a conversation with us if it's, even if it's just that a conversation. And one topic we haven't discussed is stress related to Islamophobia and this kind of, especially in rural areas, there, there is yeah. uh, uh, this kind of racism or prejudice against Muslims and people that look like Muslims. Uh, maybe we can talk about the calls that you get and maybe issues that kind of are related to racism and stress and, and the conversations you've had about that. So Islamophobia is actually ranking at a 5% um, in terms of the amount of calls that we are getting. Um, and very loosely, without getting too nitty gritty into the data, it is more in the bigger metropolitan cities that we are finding that we're starting to see those correlations with Islamophobia as opposed to the smaller um, location pockets. And again, that's really from, from an Issa Helpline lens. I'm not going to really shout out loud and say this is the case. Um, but in terms of you know having that conversation, uh, for us, this piece is about awareness. Um, I always say it, it's, about, it's about really reaching people and onto that. Are you curious? And, and if you're curious, we can have those conversations, right? So and it's twofold in identifying and having those conversations um, and preparing our 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 girls in particular because this one islamophobia we do find to get we do tend to get those from the, from the younger age group so preparing our girls for a community for going out into the world where you you really have to manage some of those expectations and approach with with different set of skill sets so for this one at the helpline at nissa helpline we in particular um our belief is that through outreach and education we'll be able to have the most impact on islamophobia um, and that means, you know, we, you would see, you know, we have quite a few already and I encourage you to check out our, our Facebook page where we post most of our videos and, and things like that. But in terms of Islamophobia and our goal is to provide education and outreach. And again, the root cause, right? Like really just prevent that. If we were to be able to educate people, um, we, we can really nip it in the bud, <laughs> um, and get ahead of that really early or as early as we can. And as, as you were saying, education, engagement, outreach. So, uh, you know, one of the organizations that we work closely with is uh, Islam Unraveled. And the, the whole premise of that is to target uh, the root causes of Islamophobia and deal with education as, uh, as a cure, uh, engagement as a cure. Um, at all levels of society, both, uh, you know, from, from schools to, to, you know, masjids to uh, government institutions and, uh, you know, new, new refugees, new, um, you know, new immigrants, uh, people dealing with uh, through all, all kinds of uh, avenues of life. It's to, to educate people about, you know, Muslims, about the culture, about Islam, and, and to help Muslims have the, you know, uh, as you were saying, skills and wherewithal to deal with uh, you know, discrimination or, or racism when they face it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Yusuf. It, it, it is twofold, right? Um, in that the, 
you know, our next generation, they're, they're entering into communities and workplaces um, where they're different. So having that skill set to be able to, you know, thrive again in, in this environment and um, educate and, and really, come, really come across as uh, building a collective community with everybody that's in there. Right, all of the all of the people that's that makes up our our lovely Canadian fabric, and American exactly. or North American and friends. Let's not forget them. <laughs> exactly, and and I think one critical thing about Muslim women, and more so than Muslim men, is a Muslim woman wearing hijab like yourself immediately is recognized as a Muslim, right right then and there by other Muslims and obviously the general public. And uh, in our work with the the BC hate crimes uh, for the RCMP. Uh, a lot of the actual verbal and physical attacks are actually uh, to Muslim women, specifically in public areas, whether it's shopping malls, but particularly at uh, transit stations, bus stops, uh, on trains, on buses. And, and sadly, you know, we've, we've had here in Vancouver a number of cases of, of physical assault where, where Muslim women wearing hijab uh, have been targeted and, and have been, been uh, physically assaulted. So in our protection and work to kind of help these sisters to, uh, to protect themselves from this kind of uh, abuse, uh, one is, again, the awareness. And, and sometimes this, this shocking thing is uh, there's a university professor who's a Muslim woman that was on a panel with us, and somebody had pushed her into traffic. And I was so, I was like, and I was like, what did you do? And she goes, oh, I, I just thought he had a mental health issues. And I said, so you didn't report it? You didn't? talk to the police she didn't so she just kind of you know even though she's a professor a lecturer but she kind of gave that person the the benefit of the doubt that maybe they had a mental health issue a bad day whatever it was and didn't report it and so to give the sisters that confidence that hey you know it's not acceptable in any way shape or form mental health or, or not from somebody in the public verbally or physically harassing them or, or trying to hurt them and so with the resource of the nissa helpline that uh, that women are not alone uh, muslims are not alone that that if, if verbal and physical harassment is there that, that there are resources that we can provide so maybe we could just talk a bit about that i know it's a big issue uh but but uh please go ahead so, you know, this one, again, we very close to, you know, we've, we've, we've been receiving these calls for years. So, you know, I, I think that we've been saying this for a long time, <laughs> that this is happening in our community. Um, but, um, you know, I, um, tw I think 2020 is the year I've, I've said internally to our team, I think they're finally listening to us, <laughs> right? I, I think they're finally hearing that we've been on to something. Um, you know, we've had one of our volunteers showcase recently what it meant for her, a very young Muslim um, sister, what it meant for her to be a black Muslim um, in hijab in Toronto, you know, and she, she shared within the team, and we also shared this on our Facebook page about her, her stories of being pushed in the subway stations, of um, being pushed in, in buses, of being told um, you know, those, those comments that we, we don't want to repeat. Um, and, and that's just one, right? And that's one really close to heart. That's our volunteer. That's somebody who's doing the work like us. And then when I spread it out a little bit more and I say, um, well, what's happening to the people that aren't um, necessarily calling us or, or having, um, you know, really voicing what's actually happening there? Is, is it there? Islamophobia is there. Um, 
I've been a hijabi here in Canada for, I've been a hijabi for a long time. I've been in the workplace in Canada with hijab for more than 12 years. Um, and the, the one thing that I can say is equipping our young girls with the skills that they need to be able to navigate um, some of the complex situations or, com or conversations they would have found themselves in is, is what I, I personally believe is key at this stage. Uh, we can't change everybody. We can do a lot of, like, um, um, you know, we can outreach, we can educate, we can go as far as we can go, but we also need to invest into our, our young girls, our young, our youth to be able to navigate um, a system where they're not the majority. Um, personally, I, I can say for me, I grew up in a country where Muslims were not the majority and hijab was not the majority. So I feel like when I came to Canada, I definitely had some, some of those skills um, sort of already there. <laughs> but I, I look at and I, I listen to some of my Muslim sisters, um, really close friends who, like me, go into the corporate space, but they can't. They can't navigate it. The, um, it's just too much, right? And, and I think that piece is, is critical to the, to the point where I think if we have to continue to look at how well Muslims integrate into North America and integrate in our workplaces, in our schools, we really have to take this on as an education piece that's intentional on, on, um, on developing these skills that, that our youth need. And would you say there, Tariq, you hit a you hit a nail. I don't know. <laughs> well, well, you know what? It, it, it is it, like I, I have two daughters and, mm -hmm. and my wife as well, and and just with our, our really close friends, they're almost like family. Like the, our volunteers and our our team of of sisters that work with us on multiple projects, and uh, when when we hear what what's happened or, or what happens, and you guys, you know, you're the heroes, right? You guys are there. People know you're Muslims, like. Me walking down the street, even though I have a beard, people may think, oh, maybe he just has a beard for fashion or whatever the case may be. <laughs> but a Muslim sister in a job, everyone categorically knows those are Muslims. And so as a result, those that have a prejudiced or a, a racist mindset will, 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 will uh, tend to uh, possibly do something negative. And so just with the Nissa helpline, like you said, if, if a young Muslim woman that's uh, going to school or going to start work wearing hijab, would you say a lot of those calls that do come in are just that trying to adjust into settings where it's not uh, a Muslim setting, but wearing the hijab and, and, and being a visible Muslim, is that a lot of the calls that you're getting of, of, of women trying to adjust uh, in these environments? So this is a, this is a trick one, Tariq, because I, I, you know, when, when I reflect on the calls that we get that are related to being visibly Muslim, um, it's always, it, it definitely is always connected to a time of transition. So whether I'm moving from high school into university or I'm moving into university to, um, to the workplace for the first time. And now I don't have the, have the answer to, to that, but what I can say that I have seen is um, one, it's not easy being visibly different, whether you're wearing a hijab or you're just visibly different in the majority. To the hijab itself is a spiritual um, decision that needs to be made individually. And, um, you know, whether we're supporting sisters or we're having conversations with, with women and girls who are talking about putting it on for the first time, taking it off for the first time, um, 
getting, you know, navigating through careers and through the education system with discrimination being a major barrier where to some point they know that this is holding them back. It's an individual conversation. So, and that individual conversation really has to happen on that one-on-one -on -one level. And again, really advocating that that's what we have the peer counselors for, um, where those conversations um, really uh, provide an avenue for the callers, for the women to have a chat through what they're thinking, where they're at, what this means for them. And sometimes it's a really broader conversation. Um, you know, whether it's I'm navigating racism and, and I need the help for that, or I'm unsure how I ended up with this hijab in the first place, <laughs> right? Because maybe my parents put it on for me and, and now I need to make that decision. Either way, I, I think, um, and, and not to digress from the question, either way, I think it's, it's a conversation that only a person can have on, on their own. And our counselors really provide that listening ear to ask you the questions that you can answer those questions without that non-judgmental um, piece that we're looking for. Because um, there's, no dis there's no dispute about, is it difficult or, you know, are you gonna, is it difficult to wear hijab in a workplace? It's difficult to go outside. It, it, it's Canada, it's different. You're, as soon as you walk out, you're the first person that they see. I can't, I can tell you countless times I've walked into the room and I'm the only hijabi person there, right? Or I look across and the room is really big and maybe there's 400 people there and I'm still the only, <laughs> I've gone to so many conferences and I'm like, well, there's still only me and there's at least a thousand people there, right? And this is, this is North America. This is like a workplace thing. Um, and then sometimes, you know, I would say over the years, we've seen that increase. So now there's probably two or three, right? And, and that's a big plus. Um, but the, the intricacies of what it is to be visibly different, um, whether it's I'm, I'm going out there with the hijab or I'm no longer going out there as a hijab, those are really individual conversations that, um, that people need to navigate. I think what we strive for is that whatever that decision is, you have the skills that you need, you have the information that's in front of you. Um, and, then I, I, and then in terms of discrimination, that we're really making an effort to educate the curious um, and that's something that I've seen, you know, walking into spaces where I'm the only hijabi person for over, you know, for a long time. Um, I've always really approached it with, ask your question, I'm okay, right? Um, from that non-judgmental space. Um, and, I've, and I've seen success in that. However, again, the, the, the experiences, the lived experiences, and, and I won't try to speak for every hijabi person, but the lived experiences of discrimination, um, whether it's for hijab or something else, is is so unique that um, you know it it it's almost as I can't add value to what what does it mean when we start giving voices to to these lived experiences and really come across and really approach them with empathy and education. Absolutely, and you know you 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 mentioned something like your personal decision, your decision, and. You know, sometimes parents can say, you got to do this. But, you know, in North America, people don't really listen to their parents to the extent that they're going to grow a beard and wear, wear a hijab uh, because yeah. of parents. It's, it's their, 
their personal decision. And one key item in a previous conversation we had for our last webinar about the 12-step program and Alcoholics Anonymous and a Muslim brother who became a drug addict and an alcoholic. And he kept saying the word identity crisis, identity crisis. I wanted to be like everybody else. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be cool. I wanted uh, to be accepted. I, I wanted to, to, to have a lot of money. I wanted that lifestyle. I wanted the, you know, all, all the North American desires. So, but it was counter to, to the Islamic um, uh, ideals and principles and, and lifestyle. So it was like that inner struggle that I think men and women and boys and girls have. There is a Canadian society where everything's permissible, more or less. And then there's the Muslim uh, culture and religion that, that has restrictions and that desire to have both and that inner conflict and uh, identity crisis. And would you say a lot of those calls that come in are because of an identity crisis, trying to fit in, trying to be accepted, and trying to 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 not be the object of attention if everyone knows you're Muslim in the public. That's a tough, Tariq. So I, you know, I think as and and I I'm gonna probably start this one with a reflection of of myself. Like um, as you navigate a world where you're different, you're always really you're shaving pieces of yourself to fit in. Right. Whether you're, you know, like for some people, it's an accent. For some people, it's maybe it's the hijab. Maybe it's, um, you know, and that trend, that happens from a very young age. Right. So and then I think about this and I reflect and I say, you know, when we go to the masjids, um, you know, we try to fit in there, too. Right. So it probably won't wear the same thing that I wear to go to work. Right. So it's always that you're, you know, you're really trying to, 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 to put your best self. And does that impact your identity? Of course it does there's going to be a time where you're going to stop and you're going to say, well, why am I doing all of this? And if it starts to really take a toll on you, you're, there's going to be a time where you're going to say, is this, is this who I am? And those are the calls that we're getting. Is this who I am? Because of, of you know, I would say a lot of people, a lot of girls um, get lost in, well, why do I want to wear hijab? Or why don't I want to wear hijab? Or I, I'm spiritually, I feel like I'm ready to put it on. Um, emotionally, I don't know or if I can handle some of the implications of what this means. Um, on the flip side, spiritually, I feel like this is not who I am anymore. Um, and can I handle the implications of what this means on, you know, within my family and at that other space? So, you know, when, when you ask, is this related to an identity crisis? Yeah, I, I, think, I think we all go through all of our experiences are really discovering who we are and um, trying to live our most true experience. And as we try to do that and we try to fit into different spaces, we're gonna end up in conflict if, if some of those places start to conflict, right? And, and, and sometimes you really do get lost in, in the mix of trying to fit in. So, you know, coming back to the question, are, are the calls that we're getting related to an identity? For sure, it definitely is, but that identity is, you know, those lived experiences are so vast that um, I don't know if we have enough time to go through that right now, but it's well, so vast, that, you know, but, but to answer the question, I do believe personally it is, yes. And, and, and I think we've unpacked a lot, like you mm -hmm. really, like a really a lot of respect for the work that you guys are doing, the impact and, and especially such a crucial focus, which is Muslim women and being that non-judgmental anonymous sounding board for consultation for advice for for conversation uh because again 
uh, mental health issues when when somebody's alone left to their own mind and left to their own thoughts people can can really uh kind of have a real depression and anxiety exacerbated without speaking to somebody that that's positive that can give them solutions and 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 just good counsel and be a friend so i think on that note nissa helpline is an amazing program uh, sister than we were again i've known her for 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 a number of years a lot of respect and for yourself just meeting you and getting to know you today on this uh, this uh, this this podcast and webinar um, a lot of respect for your work and great work that 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 you've done and will continue to do so our role here is just to highlight the great work that this is a resource we want to ensure that that resource is supported and we're going to send this throughout all our various social media networks and if you could just maybe in closing just talk about the resources the phone number the website and all the various ways that uh, folks can uh, connect with this helpline Tariq, we are um, grateful that you have allowed us to share the work that we do on your platform. Um, the as we continue to collaborate, as you know, your your work, we've all we've been you know we've been connected for some years. Um, from what I understand, within your work in Vancouver, um, and we are truly grateful that you have allowed us to share the work that we do on on your platform. We continue to look forward to um, more collaborations. Um, in terms of reaching out to us, our, our service continues to be free. It's non-judgmental. Um, it's confidential. It doesn't matter what, what you're going through. We are here for you. Our, um, our service, you can reach us at 1-888-315-NISA. That's 1-888-315-6472. We encourage you to check out our um, social media as well. Uh, there's a lot of work that we put into ensuring that all the content that comes from us is related to the calls that we're getting. So I encourage you to check out our, our space on, on social media and um, we look forward to continuing to support the community. Thank you, Shaliza. And uh, Yusuf, if you could take us home with uh, all the resources that we're going to promote uh, this conversation and webinar and podcast. So please uh, close up the call. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you'll be able to find us on our Facebook page, Muslim Care Center, uh, as well as our YouTube page, same thing, Muslim Care Center, and uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, um, all Muslim Care Center podcast. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you, guys. Bye now.